All right, guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence, our continuing interview series. We have a fan favorite back, uh, Fergus Cullen, a.k.a. Trader Ferg, uh, coming at you from uh, Bali uh, to discuss, uh, you know, uh, current market markets and uh, what he's into and uh, some philosophical discussion. See where this goes, kind of like a, if we had a couple beers, what we'd be talking about, you know, <laughs> sitting in a bar somewhere. But uh, anyways, uh Welcome on board again, uh, Ferg, and uh, how you doing? Thanks, John. Glad to be back. Um, I'm good. This, um, I sort of hate to say it, but this year has actually been um, one of the better years, sort of performance and had nothing but sort of upside from it, really, from um, just getting work done, um, having doing far more sort of travel around the island and between islands where we can. Uh, but yeah, the only... The only real downside's not been able to obviously go on holidays and see the parents has been the big drawbacks. But other than that, um, yeah, no, it's insensitive to say it, but it's it's mainly been bonuses to me. Well, that's kind of the same for myself. So uh, uh, count myself blessed. Um, so we were talking before we got online, and you just mentioned it about uh, performance, and I uh, can kind of speak to the same thing. In the last couple quarters, especially last quarter, kind of s- seemed to have started. You know, for people that don't know or haven't listened to the previous interview or know your work, um, you know, talking about looking for, you know, asymmetric uh, type uh, situations uh, currently seems to be a lot in the um, – natural resources, commodity producer type situations, an area that's been kind of, you know, decimated over the last 10 years uh, as it's been, uh, as the old economy, if you will, that choo-choo train industries uh, been put off to the side, but seem to be making a comeback. Um, the last time we talked, you know, nothing had really happened. That was earlier in the year. Um, we had talked a lot about, uh, you know, beating up industries, value investing, um, positioning oneself, buying things for cheap, and then uh, waiting for an inflection point. But it kind of seems like uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not ready to say this is the, this is it. But I've seen a lot of 50-day moving averages crossing 200 days, and a lot of 200 days turning up, and a lot of things that were bombed out uh, made some big moves recently. Uh, especially like oil, for example. I mean, a $50 handle on Brent today. Um, the uranium market has just went nuts. Uh, a lot of the uranium stocks in the last uh, week or so. And uh, just kind of get your uh, views on what you're seeing. Uh, not trying to get you to call the bottom here, but uh, what, are you, what are you seeing? What are you thinking? Uh, I'm just enjoying it because I think just getting some attention essentially has some reflexivity in itself. And it's going to, when you've got such a, a solid thesis behind it or any attention that's going to draw people into the sector and start doing their research. They're going to like what they see. They're going to buy more. And then that in itself is going to be sort of a, a um, say, sort of a reflexive cycle, especially when you consider how liquid some of the stuff is. Like I, I posted the other night, just going for a few names when you, you bring up the chart and you look at the volume. I think it was um, it's Forsyth Metal, which someone just tried to put 200,000 200, into it and moved it. 36 odd percent in one one trading session you've got um the likes of deep yellow where you've seen it twice i think in um in september someone tried to get in there with 700 000 and moved it i think it was like 20 26 and then 
again recently and obviously now it's up touching um, 50 cents so it's just you, you can't you can't move any sort of institutional amount of money into these things and you only need a small proportion of that sort of hedge fund space to start cottoning on and a lot of them have done quite well out of the pressure precious metal and are looking to sort of rebalance and i think uranium is just a no-brainer so well I'm not prepared to say this is this is it this is the big um the launch i'd say that will we'll probably have some volatility but we'll see higher highs from here would be my my take i don't see us sort of mean reverting all the way back down to where we were prior to sort of november is um is my take no i think i agree with you um and typically uh, what my experience has been is a lot of times you see the equities move well in advance of what you would see in the commodity, especially in something like opaque as uranium. I mean, we're we're always going to know after the fact uh, when anything, any real term stuff starts happening, term deals start happening. I did get a kind of a kick out of, uh, I think it was you, put something on Twitter the other day. It was a reference back in 2005 when the uh, hedgies uh, got involved. And I just... I thought it was interesting because I've been watching the uh, been been binge watching billions. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, deal, but uh, that Bobby Axelrod kind of move, you know, where you know yeah. a guy could get positioned if you had a couple hundred million or a billion, a couple billion under management, you know, getting positioned in a lot of these things and then pushing the uh, just going out and buying spot. I mean, that's kind of what they did a little bit last time, and it kind of caused, like you said, you know, you start seeing that reflexivity try to get some of these uh, utilities to start thinking, you know, having to go to their uh, boss and say, hey, this this price is moving. We got to make a deal with someone. I thought that was kind of interesting you put that up there. Yeah, well, it just, it just makes so much sense if you're a sort of a hedge fund or any medium-sized fund that you could, you could I think the Zero Hedge article stated they could create their own reality. And I couldn't agree more with that. All you'd need to do is um, slowly try and, drip feed enough capital to give you um, decent exposure across all the, the juniors in the space and then um, and then start buying up spot, strangle the spot and um, yeah, you would create your own reality. You'd just, it's it's only a $12 billion market cap, like the entire space, maybe a bit more now after the last few days, but um, like Tesla traded more that, than that in a session. Like the, we're not talking a lot of capital and we're talking very liquid um, companies and then on top of that you're also talking like people have a memory of what happened last time around here so the um, you're gonna see a lot of this um, the sort of offers dry up when like I'm, I'm not out there free freely trading my stock back and forward like once this thing started to move I've just barely even um, opening my brokerage account now I'm not looking to like make a um, take profit off with some of my positions like this is I'll, I'll open the account and possibly look at um, starting to sell a bit in probably two, three years. And I think a lot of people probably have that mentality. Yeah, so that's that's my take. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, that, that's what I'm thinking. And I'm thinking it's even going to be, I mean, anything, it's, it's kind of like, you know, this rotating, I mean, this market has obviously um, tremendous fundamentals. It's, I guess, Kind of like what Doug Casey says, it's trying to put the proverbial contents of Hoover Dam through a straw. Um, yeah, I, like I mean, that. like you said, you know, a hundred grand moving a stock, you know, twenty percent or something. Some of these stocks, it's just a, it's it's almost one of the things that's really attracted me to this market. And what I keep telling people 
I mean, I don't talk much about uranium anymore because it's it's set and forget now. The fundamentals are what they are. You just have to sit, in my opinion. And now it looks like the higher highs and higher lows are coming. But when this thing gets going, uh, and like you said, somebody these hedge funds will be attracted to it. it. Won't be super huge big ones, but there's people with hundreds of millions of dollars, a couple billion. They can position. They can move this thing. It's what happened last time. And then, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm thinking to myself when anything gets going. Uh, I mean, for Christ's sake, I mean, Hertz, bankrupt companies were going up hundreds of percent. I mean, if you get a legitimate, really something, I mean, I don't like to get too excited, but this is, uh, you can start thinking about, uh, you know, this thing easily getting back to $150 billion market cap in a couple of years, like it, you know, like it was before. And I, I've always said, even when I was talking to Justin Hune last time is, you know, I think every time it seems when you have these long cycles, which I believe we're in for most of these resources, you always seem to, it might be nominal, but uh, always seem to exceed the previous highs on these deals. So, uh, or a lot of times that's the case. So, I mean, who knows when, if you get this thing really going and enough capital, you know, comes flying into it. There's so much liquidity out there just sloshing around looking for anything that's moving. I mean, these computers pick it up and there's just money just pours in. I mean, it's just uh, in a market like this. I mean, God, who knows what could happen? So, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting to watch. The interesting thing is this one's actually a far more like we do need. We almost do need that sort of an overshoot because we've got a, a far bigger supply problem this time around. Like I love it was Mike um, Elkin that stated if you're a fuel buyer looking out five years from 2005, you would have been looking at. 72 million pound surplus and for all the the flooding and everything that um that actually increased for a few reasons so you, you were never even close to a deficit and now if you do that same exercise and look out five years from now consensus is 25 million pound deficit which is obviously way off so probably say even being conservative i'd say it'd have to be 35 40. I see um, John Quake's just shown, um, I forget which um, company it was, but they, they'd done some research and they were sort of saying it was up in the high 50s um, yep, that's for the right. deficit. And so when, you, when you're talking that number, you say, we, know, we obviously know what happened last time around, and now you've got a serious supply problem. I mean, you've got, was it Rares, um, Rizvi was saying that you need two to three more because that problems by 2030. It's it's no joke this time around. You you need to pretty much um, bring on almost a, the same level of production as we um, have now. I think at the moment you've only at the current spot price you've only got about forty four percent of um, of total demand is being produced. There's um, a few that are obviously can do it, but they're offline. So where's that other fifty six odd percent going to come from? It's going to come from price getting up there and incentivizing it and that's these sort of the people that model it all, all come online at exactly 55 are smoking something pretty strong yeah and then the other thing i always go into and try to remind folks is is it's not it's to a certain extent these things are a spreadsheet exercise but having been involved in large industrial projects i mean <laughs> <laughs> i mean even uh, e Okay, I mean, first of all, where are you going to to get something, you know, permitted, up and going, materials ordered, the thing built, 
trying to get the thing commissioned and up and running, I mean, 10 years minimum, you know, I mean, I guess you could maybe accelerate that, you know, five, seven years, 10 years. I mean, and that's what I've always been preaching on this thing is people say, well, when's it going to happen? You've been saying this for two years, three years. And it's like, look, it doesn't matter. It's going to happen. It's going to exceed your expectations because there's been literally that Fukushima thing created such an air pocket, a gap when you would have normally had the price mechanism. The price mechanism got so distorted by that that the signals weren't being sent correctly. And in addition to other things, uh, Kaz Adam Prom overproducing was still pretty much a state-owned entity, uh, the Tenge uh, depreciation, things like that. But they've kind of matured that thing up in my view. Um, the management there has no desire to take over the world. They realize they have a, a crown jewel and that uh, they, they understand that market better than anybody. And I always hear that same argument. Well, as soon as it gets to $50, Kaz Adam Prom's just going to flood the market. Well, they're not, that's, they've said they're not going to do that. And that makes no economic sense if you're running the business. If you're running it as an old Soviet state owned enterprise with Soviet trained management in a five, yeah, that makes sense. But that's not the case anymore. So um, I just don't see where you're, you know, trying to bring projects up from a greenfield project, even on a, something rinky dink like a wind farm or that I do or anything. I mean, everybody's trying to wreck the project, uh, permitting issues, um, unions, I mean, government officials, I mean, the people at the site, half the people don't know what they're doing. It's always, it's one thing after another and uh, it's, uh, it's not an easy endeavor. So this, and they just keep building more reactors. I, I love, I have it in my feed, World Nuclear Association. I love the new nuclear tab. Every week, something's going critical, something's being turned on, something's being, ground's being broke somewhere. And it's not 100 megawatt. These are, you know, 1,000, 1,200, 1,400 megawatt units. Uh, it's it's unbelievable. But anyway, that's, that's why. Yeah, I, I was, yeah, well, I, I was getting sort of annoyed with that because um, that problem will flood the market because, well, the one that's done the best work on it again is Mike Elkin. He's he fully ran because had a problem production, assumed um, the Olympic Dam expansion went through, put MacArthur back on, and it still doesn't put a dent in the deficit. Um, and we obviously now know with the expansions cancelled, MacArthur's not no no uh, no, no restart there, and because um, that problem's done nothing but disappoint to the downside, and it's probably going to continue to. It just seems every um, people don't fully understand that, and the analogy would be they completely missed planting their crop this year, exactly. yep. and they can't they can't make it up. They're going to lose all that production, and people sort of seem to think that they're just there's going to be some some ramp from now to the end of the year. They it can't happen. They can't do the well head development through the winter. This is lost production now. Yeah, it's kind of that going back to your article, I like what you said, uh, I had an italics here, trading on fumes. It's like watching a car go around a track, you said, and you know that you don't really know how much gas is in the fuel tank, but it, every lap it gets closer and closer to running out. So that's kind of a, uh, it was kind of a cool uh, analogy. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? But when it does, I mean, um, I mean, I, Justin and I were having this conversation and I said, you know, I'm of the view just because uh, it's like, I, where are all these new mines? No one's even talking about doing anything just because you, you wouldn't even be able to get the money. Forget about it. I mean, it's going to take not only to just to change the sediments, just if you get to 50 or if you got to 60, 
dollars a pound, it would still take time for people's mindset to change and say, okay, yeah, I'm ready to commit a billion dollars or whatever. I mean, yeah, we can turn some of these things on like, you know, Paladin's mine and things like that, but you know, the demand's still there, the shortages are still there. So it's going to be like musical chairs. I think the music's going to stop. And then, you know, you don't want to be the guy that has this $3 billion asset sitting there that can't produce because you were late to the, late to the game. So, uh, yeah, it'll be kind of interesting, I think, uh, where this thing ends up. But I think it's going to surprise a lot of people <laughs> once, yeah, once no. it gets moving. So, um, it's, just, it's just price sensitive players, essentially. It's, it's what I always come back to when anyone asks me, like, why, why are you so interested in uranium? It was like it structurally like lends itself to boom and bust, like right, right from the outset. And then from there, you can actually like demand is knowable if you're someone like methodical you can go through and painstakingly work out every reactor demand and all the available mine um, pounds out there and from there you know it's essentially non-substitutable it's you know price and sensitive buyers these guys aren't pill buyers aren't gonna um, not buy a few million dollars worth of uranium um, when they've got sort of a five six billion tied up in a in a reactor, it's just like a joke. It's kind of like um, owning a Ferrari and refusing to put gas in it because the fuel price doubles or triples. It's your um, your investments in the in the capex and buying the thing in the first place. It's not in not in running it really. And so um, yeah, I just I just love the whole setup, and I think um, it's just sit back and let it play out now. Yeah, I think we talked about this before, kind of segues into a question. It's like, you know, I mean, I've kind of been thinking about this for the last year or so, um, talking with different people. I get emailed a lot and people hit me up and they're like, you know, this isn't going to happen or we're impatient. And it's like I've been studying a lot. You know, somebody told me you really got if you want, you know, success leaves clues. You don't have to reinvent things yourself, you know, study people that have been successful. And it's like, um you know, I was thinking about this. I was watching, uh, I don't know, I was watching some sport the other day and I was thinking, you know, there's a difference between somebody that's just playing around with his friends in a park or something, batting a ball around, and then guys are playing professional baseball or football or something like this. And, you know, the, the, the level increase, it's almost like what's genetic, you know, you inherited a certain amount of traits. It's like, do people, I'm kind of wondering this, you know, yeah, you can read about Warren Buffett, you can read all the letters, you can read Munger, you can listen to his lectures, but I mean, do you have to have that certain amount? I mean, it's just like this patience thing. People just cannot sit on their dead ass and let the thing play out. I mean, I know it's the same thing when I used to play cards. I mean, people had to play every hand and you cannot make money playing every hand. Every hand is not playable. They didn't have the patience to sit there and wait for the right position for the right set of cards to come so that they could uh, and and know the math about what the payoffs are going to be. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's just like something that, you, yeah, you can learn to a certain extent, or do you have to have something innate in you that says, I'm not affected by it. I don't get bored. I don't have to feel like I have to do something. I can actually sit here in for two or three years. Cause I know that when I do get this asymmetric payoff, that it will be so large that the, the, the time that I had to wait, the average return or however you want to say it is going to be well beyond uh, what I would, would have done messing around trying to trade myself being active. 
I mean, I'm almost wondering if that's almost separates the, you know, some of the great people or people that are successful in doing this from people that are not successful. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about that. I mean, this is a perfect example. I mean, people just cannot sit and wait and let it happen. They just, uh, this is something I've been thinking about. I don't know if you had any ideas about that or how you deal with that. Cause I get emailed all the time. It's like, when's this going to happen? I'm, you know, people get bored, you know, uh, and they say, well, there's an opportunity cost for sitting here, but it's like, well, here's the payoff though. This is what happened last time. And this, the, the fundamentals are better this time. Yeah. Well, I, I do have an opinion on that. Cause I think the, so humans are naturally bad at it to start with. We all, um, we all don't like delayed gratification. We like, um, we like to have instant rewards and stuff. And it's, it's got a lot worse in the last few years on the back of um, sort of the the whole social media, smartphone, little hits of dopamine. You had all the, the tricks brought across from um, sort of casinos to, to apps and um, social media apps and even Robin Hood and, um, and things like that in which it's just addictive now. And it's something that, shouldn't be addictive but now you've got sort of zero commission you've got notifications on your phone you've got your phone on you 24 7 you can always check how you're doing it just doesn't lend itself to um to sort of stomaching volatility and um and um being in there for the long term and everyone now is just yeah just like some of the silliness we're seeing with robin hood it's everyone is if anything lending themselves more to the herd sort of mentality via technology and it's um yeah it's just not setting themselves up for success at all it's like i've got a i often tweet about it i've got like a whole lot of rules that often people laugh at like i um i hold my thumb over my account balance whenever i check in even even now when i know i'm doing well because i don't want to get sort of my head um blow up a bit and um do some dumb trades because i know i'm up or at the same time, it was it was really important when I was buying in March to keep that thumb over and not sort of see see the balance and be like, oh God, I'm just going to close this and not look at it. Like that's a lot of what I'm reaping now was because I was um, still buying every day in March, even though it was painful. I was selling stuff I loved, and um, and still going in. So it's a lot of it's just fighting your own human nature. Like it probably, I think. I, Probably at least three quarters, if not more. Probably, probably damn near all my positions are putting buy orders in that um, I know I probably wouldn't go into the market and buy them if it hit it. Like when I see it pop up on my screen, I'm like, oh, it's still going down. And yet, I've been at this a while, and I still can't bring myself to open up my brokerage account and go in there and buy it at that level, which I think is interesting. Like I always love to go back to um, to some people that you you would have thought would have had ice in their veins like Stanley Drunkenmiller and read what he did in the dot-com boom. Yeah. So he's, yep. he um, caught him, like he said, I like I learned nothing from my stuff up. I was an emotional basket case and that's coming from probably the, the best trader. You, you'd probably call him the, the greatest trader ever and he was yet an emotional basket case. And so we've all got to inherently know that about ourselves that, your theory of how you act when something goes wrong and how you actually act is probably a large gap. And I think that's um, really important to understand. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've been able to do, I just, I don't know if it's just my nature or whatever, but uh, I mean, age and the wisdom. I mean, I went through all those stages of starting out and, you know, trying to trade. I I fought the urge recently. I mean, I had 
we can talk about get into oil and energy and things more but some of the things i bought i mean that were really i thought were really cheap and now they they've had a decent move i mean even like the xle was up about over 50 percent, i think in the last month or so but it's yeah. like okay i'm looking at it you know i've got stock charts i got a subscription i like to look at charts and i'm like okay this thing the rsi is blowing out at 90 um this thing's overbought it's pulling away from the 200 day and the 50 day there's a big gap there there's like you know standard deviation moves here why don't i just take it off the table and i'll get back in i'm not i'm fighting that urge i'm not doing that anymore because yeah. that you know because then when do you get back in you know and then you're wrestling constantly it's like look i identify this trend i think i'm going to end up where you know where this is going to go and i'm going to absorb the ups and downs because i know you know uh I guess, you know, like climbing a mountain, you know, I just got to take these breaks and deal with the uh, fatigue on the way there. And like you said, just don't look at it every day and just say, okay, um, maybe do like a monthly or weekly review. And just like you said, maybe that's a good trick. Maybe just keep your thumb over the it. Yeah. So, um, but speaking of that, um, yeah, like, uh, kind of segue over to oil i mean uh i know you, you've you've written i mean i don't want to pigeonhole you into a lot of these resources and commodities but that's the stuff that's been the cheapest and has the most uh upside i mean uh, we can get, talk about that later but uh the oil market i mean uh you wrote a pretty good article about that too about uh and you also wrote an article about renewables this whole i'm just loving the um the whole old George Soros quote comes into play here, you know, find the premise that is incorrect and bet against it. I mean, this idea, I mean, I'm, you're talking about, well, I thought we're serious people that are actually allowed to run multi-billion dollar energy companies like Shell and BP coming out and making these ridiculous comments, basically tanking their companies uh, and uh, not sticking to their knitting. And it's just, I mean, talk about like, hey, ringing the bell at the bottom type situation, the whole ESG movement and, you know, we're going to get off oil and, you know, oil's bad and this whole, uh, uh, you know, discussion, I guess it kind of needs to happen. But I mean, what, what's your, I mean, you wrote about it. Uh, I, I've talked about it a lot, but uh, I mean, maybe a quick uh, introduction before we start talking about it. I mean, this whole idea that oil uh, you know, 100 million barrels a day before COVID was was the uh, demand in the world, uh, growing at 1% to 1.5% a year because of emerging market growth. Forget about the developed world. And then no, everybody forgets about this, and Exxon confirmed this in a paper. You know, you're talking 6 or 7% worldwide depletion a year. So you've basically got to find well, at the previous, find, bring online every, you know, 7 million barrels a year of new production. Um, that's not easy to do. And uh, this idea that that just all disappears, even with the COVID thing, I think people underestimated or overestimated the demand destruction. I don't think we really got below 90 million barrels. If we did, it was just for a short time. But I was shocked about how, how, how the demand actually held up. Uh, relative uh, to what what a lot of people were forecasting. Yeah, well, so my um, my line of writing a few blogs is the um, oil demand growth is one of the most robust trends in um, in the world. Like, bet against it at your peril. And what I'm getting at there is we there's a really um, 
sort of misguided tendency to always talk about what the developed world is doing. And so to like run the numbers, like developed world, we're 1.3 billion people. We're using 13 barrels of oil per person per year. And our demographics are crap. We're barely growing. Um, and you can sort of forecast declines off that of going from 12 to 13 barrels and pat ourselves on the back. But we are the minority. So the majority is the developing in which you're 6.5 billion people and demographics have it on the way to eight, eight and a half by 2050. And if you assume that they just stay at three barrels per person per year, then you add 50% to the energy system. But if you assume that they go from just three barrels to four barrels, just increasing their living standard slightly, then you double the entire energy system. And obviously you could go to five barrels and so on. And so based on that, it's just ludicrous to think anything but growth is going to continue to happen in, um, in the oil market. And yet you, you just, um, I think it was like BP and all these um, halfwits have these calling peak oil now and have these charts rolling over. And it's, um, I just, yeah, I just don't even understand where they're drawing their figures. Are they just, are they just cherry picking data from developing countries and um, and playing to a nice comfy narrative with that? But if you step back and look at it, you understand like we're either we're either going to try and cut developing countries off entirely from energy from fossil fuels, in which case, God knows what will happen then. But um, if it just keeps growing at a near standard rate, we're we're up fifty percent, or I think hundred percent is the is my base case and when you when you have that conclusion then you understand that we're going to have to find an awful lot more reserves moving forward and a lot of what we've been counting on with shale is now showing to be um be pretty have been like building a house on sand it's not going to be there you've got like a 70 percent drop in the um the rig count you've got the likes of go rosen um like um predicting that they're going to have production fall off as much as two, um, two million barrels this year from shale, as much as another million and a half next year. Um, and that's, that's just a huge structural deficit moving forward. That's, um, that means price is really going to have to, to rocket to incentivize new production. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you mentioned it exactly. I mean, I, 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 almost can't understand i mean it's a spreadsheet exercise you talked about you know the average you know, demand and i've been saying that for years around forget about what's going on in the oecd countries you know you, mm -hmm. you you have to look at these other countries it's like i think a lot of it is where i think people like myself or you have an advantage i mean i've actually traveled to third world countries i've lived in third world countries i know what it's like to be sitting there working on something also and the power goes out and you don't know when it's going to come back on that means you have no water because the pumping station doesn't work. Um, mm. You know, you know, agriculture, people still, places I've been where people are still farming with oxen. I mean, people, you know, this is not a, a very good way to live. From what I saw when I was in these places, I wouldn't want to live like that. And this idea, like you said, that, you know, it's just, you just extrapolation of, you know, population. It's funny because somebody, you know, it's just the lack, this lack of critical thinking. It's just, it's almost like a layup, you know, it's, you're just thinking to yourself, how can not everybody else see this, you know, but uh, that's good that they can't. And, and 
And you almost think if it's deliberate in some cases in the West, I don't know if it is. I don't I don't want to get too far down that road. But, you know, the opportunity, like you said, I mean, it's the same. It's the same deal. I mean, it's not easy to go out and drill. You know, there's a reason why we were before the shale so-called revolution took place uh, in the U.S. that We were drilling in the Arctic and in these deep water because all the easy pickings had been gone over. And, mm. uh, you know, I think we're going to be in the same boat. I mean, if you look at reserve replacement, just hasn't been happening. You know, we talk about 100 million barrels a day. If every single day it was the demand. That's 36 billion barrels a year being consumed that has to be found. I mean, I keep reminding people, um, I spent a lot of time with a lot of oil field people here in Texas as I've lived here. And, you know, you see these pumping jacks and you're driving down the road and it's like, well, some of them are operating, some of them are not, you know. You, this thing doesn't just produce forever at a constant rate. And I don't, I, the layman doesn't understand these things. You know, I say, well, you got an oil well there, you know, it just goes forever. No, it doesn't. You know, uh, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, declines and, you know, geology and these people, people don't understand these things, but. Yeah, I I enjoyed that because I, um, I was playing around with decline rates the other day and I, um, I think I worked out it was, if we have, maintain the current decline rate by 2050 which is a date everyone loves to focus on 50 percent renewables by 2050 we'll only be at 20 percent of current oil production would we'll be at 20 million barrels a day we'll be able to produce and cross check that with the numbers i was mentioning before in which we are on our way to doubling the energy system <laughs> you reconcile that for me yeah exactly and you know Somebody else pointed out on Twitter that, you know, just to your point, population growth and energy growth, regardless if you replace so many electric cars, just with overall, even the BP um, annual review shows you that over time, they themselves, I mean, coal, oil and natural gas, they don't go away. I mean, you look at any, everybody that's a serious person knows this. I mean, you might be able to roll it over a little bit, but this whole idea, you know, I thought it was fun. Um some of the, I, I was reading, I interviewed Michael Kelly at uh, Cambridge University, he's a retired professor of engineering, and he was almost beside himself. He was kind of h- hilarious on the interview because he's like, I'm doing these math and doing this math. And I, you know, I, if everybody in my neighborhood got a Tesla, it would just overwhelm me. Into, they'd have to rebuild the entire, just this local grid, distribution grid. You can't, this doesn't work. Does anybody not know this? And he's, he's almost, he was kind of fun because in his mind, it's like, it should be so obvious to everyone, you know, this isn't going to work unless you invest trillions of dollars, then how are you going to do that? You know, and, you know, where are you going to get all these materials at and all these things? It's just like, it's, uh, uh, that's, that's the catch, right? I mean, uh, people, you, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, do you see, um, some scientists ran the numbers with UK, if they had to, to meet their 2030 EV needs, it was like, over 100% of world neodymium, like 50% oh, of yeah. world copper, 50% of world nickel. Well, maybe like 80% world nickel. It was, it was just, they, they pretty much sucked up all the resources for the, the coming EV boom just in the UK. And then I've seen them run the same exercise in like the Netherlands. It's just, yeah, it's just crazy. It's undoable. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I was arguing, discussing this i shouldn't say arguing but discussing with someone they're like well you don't get it. i said no you don't get it man go to the philippines and go to metro manila man people are not driving around in teslas man you're driving it jumping in the back of a jeepney 
and you know mm. flipping the guy a few pesos and that's how people get around you know and then when they upgrade they want to get a scooter and then they want to get a car just like you want one because mobility is freedom and it gives you options you know i mean i mean the way this is just so glossed over you know people don't buy cars in china and india in the middle class and then park them in a garage and look at them they drive them so uh it's just uh um, unbelievable i mean that's what i look at it's like this is a spreadsheet thing you know what's what's the growth over time compounding and like you said you don't even have to use like the us's per capita consumption i kind of like stick with japan or south korea and even there i mean like you said i mean we're gonna however you want to do this based on population and growth i mean you know 2030 you might need 130 150 depending on what you want to say you know 150 million barrels a day of production where is that coming from that's not going to happen you're not going to replace it everybody's going to be driving around in a model three that's just yeah. it's just not going to happen and then you know all the things that go along with that you know i mean uh i got fascinated i built a wind farm up in illinois and, and worked in iowa and it was like around all these farmers and stuff and i kind of got into this big time agriculture like talking to these guys and riding in combines and i was just fascinated it's like People don't really understand what's really <laughs> happening, you know. I mean, it's like these guys are out there. I mean, the amount of money, the inputs, the fuel, the nitrogen that, that comes from natural gas that's being put in. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. It's just, uh, I think people are going to be in for it. People are worrying about the wrong things, I think, and they don't. Uh, that's the opportunity, though, right? So, exactly. Yeah. So. That's kind of a good segue. Let's talk about offshore drillers because this thing uh, kind of screwed us up pretty good or screwed me up. You know, I think, you know, even last year at the end of last year, I mean, well, before we had the COVID thing drop off and uh, then the Saudi Russian thing that happened um, that really kind of exponentially crushed the oil price. But I mean, the oil price was up around $60. You were starting to see more like seemed like the the offshore industry was healing there were more uh potential um uh contracts being let and yeah there was still it was still up in the air because there were some you know weak weak players out there but it looked like this thing might have been turning and then we got crushed and now you know this thing's all in bankruptcy now uh i know some people hit you up there but what what what's what's your what's your take on what happened and then you know People say to me, I mean, I've, I've had people like, you know, they like to rub my face in it, which I don't, I don't take any personal, hey, I, I know what's going to happen. You know, 30% of our oil comes from offshore. Uh, and I know that, you know, this industry is consolidating and that we're going to have to get back to work at some point there. But, you know, I did make a video one time where I said that if I had a billion dollars, I would have bought all of, um, I forget which company it was, maybe it was Ensco, all their debt or something like that. That probably wouldn't have worked out for me. But um, uh, what, what, where, where did we go wrong? Where, where, where was the thinking wrong on that? And, and then what did you do? At what point did you say, look, this, I just, this is not tenable. Uh, I'm wrong right now, even though I may not be wrong long term. I mean, or, or what your thought process was as that thing came unraveled? Well, the thing with us is to, to realize, along with pretty much everything we're investing in at the moment, is they're inherently terrible businesses. They're... Um... <laughs> They're just <laughs> when you think about um, how they work, they're um, they're essentially all sort of marginal cost bought, like and expensive hard assets bought with a shit ton of debt. 
it's um it's you couldn't come up with a worse business really and so we went into this in the first place knowing that these guys are really are a call option on the oil space and like any sort of out of the money call option if you're talking about 10 um, baggers then you're going to have a few go pop on you and that was my take i lost i lost three four percent of my account with Valaris, diamond um noble i think yeah and looking pretty sick on i think i've still got a little bit of um transocean hiding there around somewhere up around the seven eight dollars which is, is obviously pretty embarrassing when that was down in the 80 cents or where it got down to <laughs> but um yeah like it's also at the same point i've got a few positions which are worth three percent and they're now now pushing 20 percent of my portfolio so that's oh. that that's kind of the game and so if you're not willing to kind of like the vc model if you're not willing to have a few um failures like we're, we're not we're not sort of warren buffett types where um i'm working out every cash flow and wanting to sit on this business for um my lifetime like these these are inherently crap businesses that there is a, a window in which you want to own them and you're treating them like call options and so probably the answer is it really just comes down to proper position sizing and accepting that when you're playing with these companies at some point you're probably a sector is going to catch you out and you're going to you're going to dust that section which it really comes down to yeah properly sort of um risk control across your portfolio and dividing them all up and so that would be my take overall like regrets of it none really like it's um you're going to have a few losses and if you you can say all sorts of things with hindsight bias and i should have waited i should have waited for them to break out but if you do that you miss miss getting the absolute bottom and i think uranium showed us that pretty well as if you um a uh, good example is any of the the small guys if you said oh, i'll i'll buy them when i break out or congratulations you've they're moving up 20 30 percent a day your um your cost base is going to be a lot higher than um and that makes a huge difference in the long run so that, that's that's my take is it's just a it's accepting the game you're in really no i think that's exactly right i mean i've got my newsletter and some people will ask me i do a cursory um I don't do discounted cash flow analysis. Just to your point, these are shitty businesses that you said it perfect. They have a window of opportunity once a decade or so uh, for maybe 18 months or two years if they're lucky, where they make tremendous, they can cash flow tremendously. They draw a lot of attention to themselves uh, because of that. And they usually, they, 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 they're like a shooting star. That's how it goes. And the venture capital mentality is exactly it and i think you said it exactly right i mean position sizing is really how you control for the risk that and uh you know uh, you know i i've i've kind of read a lot about you know i was reading paul tudor jones and some of the things he did to kind of control some of these things and you know i mean i think once the thing's confirmed you you know we sit here and we wait and then we had this breakout like we saw recently uranium you know then you say to yourself okay now i'm in a i i feel like i'm in a bull market i'm seeing the higher highs of the higher lows i'm seeing the volume come in i'm seeing the things that are indicating me that serious money starting to move into this space and this may not be a just a uh, flash in the pan and then you can layer on on, on pullbacks that's what you do in a bull market and uh, or that, that's how I look at it. And then, um, you know, but I don't I don't lose any sleep over this either, because I know 
I, I know that I'm a I'm a ball player. I mean, I'm a big baseball fan. I know I, I'm going to get I'm going to get another. I'm going to face this pitcher again. Let's put it that way. I know that this is going to come around. These things are going to go through bankruptcy. They're going to come out. The assets don't drive and blow away, and they don't just everything go to scrap. The owners just change. The debt holders, the equity holders, got wiped out. The debt holders become um, the new owners of the company. And uh, usually what happens is, I mean, I've had that experience before where, where I've waited and came into some after the fact and it's it made out like a bandit. So I know, uh, to your point, I think that position sizing is the right thing. You just don't go 100 percent into something. Uh, and and I think, you know, spreading it out. I think uh, maybe I read an article you had or somebody said on Twitter, you know, you got to go in with a basket on these on this type of stuff. You just can't, you know. Yeah you know, pick one and go for it. I mean, that doesn't work out usually. Yeah, completely agree. So speaking of that, I mean, I we're starting to see some of these things come through bankruptcy. And I think that's what we needed to see anyways. I mean, I follow Basso analytics and we need to see the scrapping. I mean, you're seeing the same thing in OSV, right? I'm not going to get into the particular names, but there's one entity that has already made it through. It's the top of the line. Well, I'll just say it tied water. Everybody else is in debt up to their ass. And uh, that's the competitive advantage that a company like Tidewater has over all of its competitors because they've been through the process. They don't have any very, virtually very little debt. They're actually cash flow positive, even in this market. And that's what you can see. And, uh, you know, um, if you if you see things like that, you know that, you know, there's some other things in the, you know, space around um, seismic uh providers or analysis of seismic, uh, you know, some of the things that have to happen on the front end uh, of the exploration. So I'm pretty excited about this longer term. I just feel like, you know, man, I had this thing nailed and then, you know, uh, but you can't control for these, for these unknowns. Shit happens and you just, uh, you know, move on to the, to the next deal. But just wanted to get your take on that. Cause you know, I got a lot of pushback on that. People were like, you know, uh, you know, people like to, especially if you're a public figure and you've probably seen that you write and stuff and you're on Twitter a lot. Yeah. If yeah. something goes wrong against you or something or something's not, you know, you, you attract a certain amount, that, that shit doesn't bother me. I, I don't care. I just thought I was yeah. curious to get your view. The one that gets me at the moment is no matter how many times I write it, people like message me and say like, just wanted to thank you. I've just bought... Um, noble or something on the otc market i'm like god no it's it's trading in bankruptcy you're gonna get wiped out like it's buy it when it relists buy it on the new york stock exchange so yeah people manage to find ways to do dumb stuff regardless so just yeah do not ever buy it on the any of these on the otc and a q symbol is in bankruptcy yeah yes that's what that means (laughs) okay right from that little rant um yeah, so it's it's is a thesis and um, still in order. And um, has anything changed? And so my basic breakdown of offshore is you run through the numbers I went through earlier. Obviously, developing growth, you come out with fifty percent growth, maybe hundred if depend where you see them increasing their living standard. And then you simply look at how much of the oil majors reserves are offshore, and it's about forty five. So. If you assume that there's going to be a um, that sort of demand growth, and you look to where, like we've already had, um, we were already know the sort of declining um, amount of um, oil reserves across the world. Or they're sure as hell going to make use of what they've got. So when you you're talking 45% of it, um, 
then they're going to want access to that when the oil price starts rising. And then how are they going to get that? Well, they need um, they need offshore drillers. They need access um, to that oil via the contractors. And so that, that really is the basis of the um, the whole thesis is that there is going to be a need for these guys, and they're going for a brutal time at the moment. Like they like every cyclical industry, completely overordered. Um, rigs during the last boom and heaps of them are sitting in the shipyard. They've either gone bankrupt and refused to take delivery of them. So the shipyards are either having to scrap them or um, find like they, they just can't hold them anymore. I was reading an article from Basso that was said that they were going to have to take, so they built them at cost of 25 billion and they're going to currently valued at about six and they're going to have to, they're going to have to take that hit and just decide whether to scrap them because they can't hold them on their books much longer. And so that's just the perfect setup when you're going into demand where I think by 22, you're looking at two, three million barrels of structural deficit, which means oil is going to have to be probably well north of $100 a barrel. And then going back to what I talked about before with these are inherently crap businesses, the first point of focus is how do you find a margin of safety? And that's why I've been banging on about getting these guys when they relist post restructuring. You can choose to jump into something now like Transocean with, it was, I think it's just reduced its debt from 9 billion to 8 billion, um, who are like just got that huge overhead. They're um, sort of struggling to make ends meet with um, obviously still low utilization. So, barely meeting um, sort of debt servicing and maintaining everything. Or you can look for someone like Noble, who's just had a debt for equity swap, announced that they're probably going to relist in Q1 next year. And they wiped out three and a half billion of um, of debt, obviously reduced their debt servicing 90%. They haven't got a maturity um, coming up for five years. Um, the new New equity holders are injecting 200 um, million into the company. They've got a a, um, a new um, debt facility for another six seven hundred million. Still got a 1.4 billion backlog. So my kind of thinking on this is I'm probably going to do a basket of the likes of Noble, Diamond, and possibly Valaris. It doesn't get chopped up too much. So you you build a similar backlog to Transocean with these guys. And yet you've got essentially no debt, so you've de-risked the riskiest, um, one of the riskiest assets with leverage to the upside, and that's why I kind of write about it and half away on it is to have this sort of a setup where essentially everyone's had to take the write down before for this asset-heavy industry. It's the perfect time to step in, and then on top of that, if you can get sweeteners like I, I always sort of pester all the. The guys at these companies, um, while they're in restructuring, asking if they're going to offer warrants, so that um, so people don't get away with the sweetheart deals, and hopefully, hopefully, you can um, let a few of us retailers in there to get some warrants if they do. Then um, you really are getting a highly de-risked, out-of-the-money call option on oil, and that's that's pretty much the thesis. Oh, absolutely, and uh, the one thing that needed to happen. Uh, through the bankruptcy process is it gives the air cover to scrap out and, you know, get these marginal rigs and these older rigs. I mean, I think I read a similar article to you. I mean, one of these companies, I mean, they scrapped basically a couple of drill ships that were only like 
five or six years old just because yeah. it was they just couldn't maintain it any longer. So that needed to happen. And then the asymmetry on the upside when the cycle does turn, because uh, once uh, the price does get to you know uh, a sufficient level to stimulate new 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 exploration. Uh, there won't be sufficient uh, rigs and uh, you know, it's the same deal, right? That's why you get a cycle because you can't just snap your fingers and ring up a couple guys in India and have them code you a, a drill ship. It takes uh, time to order it and get it, you know, and then all the guys, this is the thing that happens in a lot of these businesses. I know a lot of guys that used to work in the oil field, they won't go back to it now. I mean, I know a guy that opened a pot shop in Oregon and another guy that did this and he said, I'm never going back to the oil field, you know? And so how do you replace those guys that are, you know, got 20 years experience that just said, I'm not, I'm not doing that again. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that gives you that, that gives you that run that you're going to get that two year, three year run and that, how that thing can go from, you know, get, get, you know, you get the 10 or 20 bagger out of it. So yeah, definitely. Uh, that's what I'm looking forward to. Um, so we've talked a little bit about oil. I mean, I, I really, pretty stoked on that. I think that that's going to really surprise. Uh, and you know, what's your thinking or your thoughts? Uh, I mean, I'm just, people have been getting on me on my YouTube videos. They say, I talk too much about macro. I don't like to do too much macro or, you know, I'm not a macro guy. I'm not a Brent cook. I'm not sitting around, you know, trying to figure out what the fed's going to do or the dollar, but it's fascinating to me, all the currency units being created by all these different governments, you know, the United States, uh, you know, this, uh, central bank in Europe, Japanese central bank, of course, which is, you know, crazy. And, you know, I kind of got this thing mapped up my mind, you know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, I, I don't really buy into this, you know, yeah, I think Klaus Schwab is kind of a comic book character, you know, but, you know, I, I this whole conspiracy thing kind of, I, I can't get behind it because, you know, you try to get five friends, three or four friends to decide what bar to go to or what movie to see is kind of hard. And then people talking about these conspiracies, but, you know, this vaccine, this thing eventually dies down. There's so much liquidity out there. People have been cooped up for so long. I mean, as soon as I can get, go where I want to go, I'm gone. You know, I, I, I got, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go. And a lot of people are saying the same thing. So you have this big surge of demand. Supply has been constricted because of what's happened in many industries. You know, you get this inflation going and, uh, you know, this thing could really, I mean, demand for, I mean, we're already seeing 350 copper and nothing's really yeah. happening except for Chinese demand. But, you know, I think people are forgetting about the supply destruction. I remember Jim Rogers is famous for saying, yes, the demand can go down, but the supply is going down faster. You get a price rise. So um, any thoughts around that? I mean, I, I'm thinking you could really get, if this thing turns back on, you could get a lot of um, supply shocks become evident in like, pretty quickly around some prices in some of these resources just be, I mean, they're already going nuts. I mean, soybeans are over $10 a bushel or lumber. I mean, the housing market in the U S is going crazy uh, just because we have a demographic cohort that's forming families in addition to, you know, some shortages. I mean, any thoughts about that? I mean, there's just so much, I guess what I'm saying is there's just so much kindling there. There's so many currency units that have been created uh, if you get any whiff of any kind of economic activity, that velocity could turn on pretty quick and some of this stuff could, you know, go nuts. Yes. I, I, like you said before, I tread very carefully when I go into macro because I know I get out of my depth very quickly. And a lot of the 
I'm very suspicious of a lot of the like talking about velocity M2 and I yeah, just yeah. think a lot of it's largely bullshit. Like it's, you can hear two economists parrot away with none of it having any real relevance in the real world. So I have a lot with Brad. He like gets glassy eyed if I ever talk about any of it with him for more mm-hmm. than a minute or two because it's, it's a lot of it isn't um, sort of doesn't have any basis in making money. It's just like economists speak. But that said, I do have quite a strong view in the fact that a lot of what we think we know about sort of why we haven't got inflation now is pretty much on the back of monetary policy, which is just, it's fed through to assets. Um, You also have Mm -hmm. globalization in the background. And fiscal is a completely different beast. Like we've we've essentially taken monetary policy to the maximum when once you hit the zero bound, you can't do much more in monetary policy policy is really just how you pump the brakes on inflation. That's kind of how I view it. Whereas fiscal, fiscal of actually putting money in people's hands is how you can create inflation. Mm-hmm. And when you think about fiscal, like people like to think about like post-World War II when you're rebuilding bridges and factories like that, that can create quite a, a good outcome and growth. But when you've got the sort of fiscal we've got now, like to sort of call it inefficient fiscal, then um, you're essentially paying people to stay at home, not produce, sit on the couch, like these sort of care act and whatnot. That's that's just going to cause money to slosh around in the system. And at the same time, demand's obviously, I mean, supply, sorry, is falling off a cliff. And so what you've got, you've got, as you said before, people are going to want to get out of their home and travel a bit after being locked up for a year. So you're going to have demand bounce back. You're going to have all this extra money floating around from fiscal if we, the governments once have, it's like, kind of like saying um, after one round of quantitative easing it'll go away. Well, how'd, how'd that work out? Once, same thing oh, with yeah. fiscal. Once it's once the cat's out the bag, it's not going back in the bag. And so we're going to continue to have sort of whether it's through the modern monetary theory, um, going to have more fiscal floating around. And then the supply destruction that's occurred that's permanent. That's going to be far harder to rectify that. And so like when you add that together in a simple equation, you've got, you've got more money, more demand and less supply. Well, that just screams inflation to me. And when you go back to what we're talking about with oil, people just forget how intertwined energy is in the entire economy. Like it is literally in everything. It's like people forget from the plastics to making concrete to, like it's just you can't get away from fossil fuels. It's absolutely tied into everything. And so when that starts rising, that we're going to see sort of costs increases show up in all sorts of places that we didn't think of. Whereas the last the last sort of five or so years, people forget that in, in combination with globalization, you actually had sort of commodities falling, which in itself is helping to bring the bring the prices down. And so when you have that all reverse, I think people are going to be pretty surprised and see a whole lot of the market, which is essentially just different variations of long duration, like tech. It's, it's all the idea that um, if I give you a dollar, I don't need a return on it for a few years. And something like tech, like tell me you'll be profitable a few years out, whereas if inflation's at 5%, then I want to know that you're going to make a good return in a shorter time frame. And so that's kind of the idea that a lot of the stuff we're going to see start outperforming and where we are now is essentially short duration or 
slash kind of value. And um, yeah, so that's as far as I'll dip my feet into macro. I try and back away from it pretty quickly because I know I get out of my depth and start sounding pretty pretty dumb quickly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, there's really no need to get too far into it just because it's it's uh, far easier to, you know, like we were talking about, you know, understand how inculcated oil is into everything and then just extrapolating populations and economic growth. And then what number do you want to put on, you know, demand growth in the emerging markets and then, you know, sitting back and, you know, figuring where you end up and that we're not going to be able to get there without trillions and trillions of dollars of investment that's not happening. And there's no, no, not only uh, incentive pricing right now, there's no desire among the society, the zeitgeist, if you will. I mean, this just turning your back. On, I mean, I'm almost rubbing my hands together. I use the term heads I win, tails I win bigger. It doesn't even matter what they do, what what the policies are at this point. If if you know, I was talking to a friend. It's like he's like, well, you know, the price, you know, renew, you know, these renewables. I said it doesn't matter. I mean, they can force everybody. Like in California, you know, you can't heat or cook with natural gas and new homes being built. Well, that's interesting that you do that, except for you still have to get the electricity. Electricity heating or cooking is more is inefficient. And, uh, you know, you still have to have the power produced somewhere. And uh, that's going to be a natural gas combined cycle power plant. So it doesn't really matter, you know, be just because the so people don't understand. Like you said, you know, I think it's fascinating. People go, well, emissions, we got to do something. Okay, then get rid of steel making, uh, the Bessemer blast furnaces and cement making, because that's about 20% of your CO2 emissions in the world right there. And uh, <clears throat> people don't even know what you're talking about. You know, I was, we had some visitors out at the site one time and they were asking how much concrete and steel just goes into the foundation of a wind turbine. And they're like, shock. And I, I started kind of sneaking, I have to sneak my barbs in. I'm like, you know, uh, it was like, well, you know, CO2 sequester, so, do you know how cement's produced and how that happens? And like a solar panel, you know, I mean, you have to heat the silicon, right? Polysilicon yeah. to thousands of degrees. Well, where do you get that level of heat from? This doesn't come from, you know, we did the, we did the proposition of friend and I, you know, the wind turbine that I'm putting up, that's three megawatts. It can't produce enough power during its life to replicate itself. It's, it's, it's just, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, it's seriously. And so it's like, yeah. um, it's, it's amusing to me. So, that's when I look at these things and it's like, you know, uh, it goes back, I think, to uh, one of the things I've been telling a lot of people in my videos or talking to folks is you got to take these biases out. People have so many biases that they insert into these things like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do well by doing good. Well, I don't know what that means. You know, we just had this announcement here in the U.S. where I think it was the SE, or NASDAQ is now saying that, well, they proposed a rule that if you want to list on NASDAQ. Uh, you'll have to have a certain composition of the board, which is going to be, you know, has to be like a, somebody of some minority that they listed or LGBT, which is fine. I mean, I guess, but, you know, is that, you know, how you compete in a, in a free market by having the board members selected based on some classification of their standing in the overall society? Or do you do it by having the best board members that have experience in the business you did that can help guide the management to having a successful, you know, outcome? So I just look at these things and I just think to myself, you know, this all sets up as like, how do I, this is perfect for speculation and perfect for, you know, the things that we're doing just because 
the shit doesn't work. What they're saying is just, it just doesn't work in the real world. And uh, I was reading an article the other day. Somebody said that the guy says uh, being a SJW is kind of like just denial of reality. You know, I mean, it's like you said, you know, you, you bring up these talking about like steel making. Like mm. coking pole producer in Mongolia was up three times last week. One that I've been in for same thing. I've been sitting on my dead ass on the thing for four years, and then it popped went up three times last week. So, yeah, and why? Idea. Yeah, why? Because yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, this is what happens because you know hard coking coals needed for the Bessemer process to make steel. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I I I don't know. I just think it's fascinating the uh, mindset of. Uh, uh, and into my my mind how how these things seem so obvious but uh yeah speaking yeah, well, of that uh, go ahead go ahead oh i was just going to say with the going back to the emissions just people just don't understand as you sort of said with steel or cement or even i think fast fashion is even pushing 10 percent like passenger vehicles are only 14 percent i think when i was looking at rob west got a great chart i should find sometime i should chuck it up on twitter and he just broke down all the different industries and it's like 36 different things all contribute if you were to break it down on a percentage basis. It's, um, yeah, people have a very simplistic view that it's all just passenger vehicles and airplanes. Well, it's not even close. It's it's in, in everything. And um, that's just not, not well understood at all. The thing I find fascinating is I've asked people, you know, I said, you know, these people that we're competing with like China or India or, these places, I remember when I was in Mongolia many, many years ago, um, uh, what was it? Oh, I was there. I actually worked for Duke Energy at the time, and I would have, that's when I first yeah. met uh, Harris, and that's when he was mm -hmm. running around with uh, him and a buddy buying apartments with cash. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, this, <laughs> I don't remember, that was like 2009 or 10 or something like that. Anyways, he knew we were having a couple of beers he goes oh yeah man there's so much opportunity you know you should meet this guy and get, i was actually packing to go to the airport and he said hey if you want to you he calls me up he goes you can take this meeting with this guy he's like the um assistant to like the energy ministry you might want to talk to him and i'm like what i mean it's how is this possible do it but i didn't hmm. damn i talked to the i didn't take the meeting but i just talked to the guys assistant they the guy was telling me the story how they threw out threw an ngo out of the office they were in there like we have all these coal resources you should really think about you know not using to say, hey, listen, lady. Uh, I mean, it was said nicely, but basically, you've you have developed your country. It was on the back of coal and all these other things, and that's what we're going to do here. So please, thank you very much. But uh, uh, next, you know, I mean, but so that's that's exactly right. I mean, uh, it's uh, ask what are we going to do? Tell China that uh, I mean, they're emerging power in the world in Asia, and tell Asia you can't develop. How how does that work? You know, I mean, how does that get done? You know, I, I don't, I don't understand that. Um, yeah, I'm actually writing the, an article, like next one for the blog on coal at the moment, and I was running, I was just working out some numbers yesterday. <laughs> You'll enjoy this. So it's, it's currently 1.8 million uh, megawatts of coal plants operating globally. There's currently 200,000 megawatts under construction, which is an additional 11%. 300,000 um, is planned, which is an additional 17%. So you're adding a third to the entire coal fleet. And then to understand um, how that sort of plays in with um, with like the likes of Europe, where everyone's obviously pushing ESG. Well, 
Europe's obviously got 50,000 um, megawatts of operating coal, and yet China's building double that currently, so it's got it under construction. Uh, you, if you include plan, uh, plan coal, then it'll be 4x the amount of Europe's total operating coal. And Asia, other Asia, so that's like um, obviously South Asia and even Japan is included under that. That's got the same amount of Europe's total operating coal plants under construction at the moment. And India has also <laughs> the entire amount of Europe's operating coal plant under construction currently. So when you, you consider that and you think ESG's told us coal's in terminal decline across across the world, and then, um, yeah, they're kind of they're missing the, uh, the boat with it. I mean, I've actually told uh, some younger relatives of mine, I mean, you really need to consider, you know, um, traveling more and then maybe finding, uh, you know, think about moving to Asia or some of these other places, not because I'm worried about insurrection or anything, because that's where the opportunity is. I mean, we're almost self-destructing ourselves in the West. And, you know, once these mindsets, what bothers me is, I went to a dinner the other day with a lot of my guys. Most of my guys that work f for me are probably, well, they're all engineers, civil, electrical engineers. They're probably 24, 25, 26 years old. And their mindset's different. They're not hardcore, you know, ESG guys, but you can see the, the how they've been marinated their entire academic career since they were in kindergarten to in university, you know, because uh, I talk about some of these things. I like, because I'll just sit there and slag on renewables, and I'm like the renewable manager. <laughs> I'll wear a I love coal shirt to work and stuff like that. And people yeah. are like looking at me, and I'm like, I just want to stimulate conversation, you know. And uh, yeah. they're like, well, why are you even doing this? I said, because it pays me. What do you think I'm doing this for? Because I'm lowering CO2 emissions because they pay me a lot of money. That's why. What do you think I'm doing here? It's 30 minutes from my house. And it's like these guys, uh, I mean they've really convinced a lot of people it, it, it has been effective and that's going to lead to consequences. It's going to lead to economic decline, you know, and uh, it's going to be, you know, there's a lot of ruin in a country. It's not going to happen in a year or two, or probably even in a generation, but you can see it already, you know, look at Germany. I mean, Germany is an industrial powerhouse, a exporter. That's what their economy is based on. Uh, and, you know, they have the highest power costs in Europe and that has an effect. Uh, you know, uh, that, that, that's going to, you know, if if China and India already have a labor advantage and their technology is increasing every year and the amount of university graduates coming out of their universities are being educated in the West and coming home, they just have sheer numbers on us. And then you want to further handicap yourself by going down this path. I mean, yeah, I, I don't think you want to stay here. I mean, what are your prospects long term? You know, I mean, you have to think about that, I think. or I tell people to. Yeah, well, Germany's interesting in the fact that it's it's obviously only really gotten away with what it's done to date because it can import power. So yeah, exactly. There's um, you can see that they actually dropped below their own requirements during November and December last year, and they only got bailed out by the likes of um, of France with um, with nuclear. And so when you understand that they're looking like they will be up around the 580 billion. And they haven't even maintained generation taking nuclear, and they're building a new coal plant at the moment, just to just to round out the irony. But they haven't even maintained generation because that's that's one of my pet peeves is when people love talking about capacity. So you can be talking about someone brings on a 
uh, sort of a thousand megawatt nuclear reactor and you can talk about someone bringing on a, like a wind farm of a thousand megawatt but usually they're talking about capacity um, and not talking about sort of generational capacity factor and well, you'd know this well but like some of these are only 20 30 um, percent capacity factor so really you're only bringing on sort of um, two three hundred um, megawatts of generation which is means you've got to put a mag, uh, order of magnitude more of these um, things to replace a higher capacity factor like nuclear at sort of 90 percent and um, if they're the pilot scheme for people hoping to do this around the world then um, you're going to see a lot of them sort of say oh I've seen how it worked out for you and no thanks yeah but the retort is but batteries Ferg but batteries, yeah. uh, batteries. That's what I say. okay yeah I'm waiting <laughs> on those batteries interstellar star travel too will eventually happen but I'll be long gone so uh <laughs> I mean I, I, I did the math on batteries yeah so I don't know if you read um I try I try to run through it all in renewable debate I wrote a blog on it and you got the example in Australia where they, they, they tried to do it with the old Elon stepping in and strapping a whole lot of Tesla batteries together and I think it was so the amount they paid for the wind farm they then paid it again for a battery which got lots of publicity but when you look into what the battery can actually do it was um, it's pretty much frequency control the majority yeah. of its capacity and then it could maintain storage for four hours and it was at the same cost of the wind farm and then they looked to expand it out so they doubled the size of the battery and that didn't even get the equivalent increase in storage again so it was like it was like six and a half seven hours of total storage um for obviously double the cost of the original wind farm and you can just like well, what is necessary storage to properly back up a wind farm and i'd hazard a guess you you've got to be at least a day if not um if, if not two or three days for when um when it goes down and you don't have the luxury of importing power from your neighbors and so pretty quickly you get a pretty ridiculous figure um and then you also have the problem of can you actually source that many material materials to make um batteries of the size like if you start um trying to install these things the world over then similar to what i said earlier with the uk when the scientists trying to work out what would be required in terms of materials just to have um the UK meet its um, supposed aims for all renewable uh, or EVs by 2030. Or well, then, the point we're going to find out that the supposed learning curve of batteries just decreasing in cost. What happens if nickel doubles? If um, if lithium doubles? If triples? Like at what point is we're going to find out that a lot of the declines are actually decreasing commodity prices and just mass manufacturing these things off obviously dropping costs. Because it's it's always interesting when um, you think who would probably be the the overall leader in battery technology, and it'd probably be Apple has got the most money to spend on it. And um, I don't know about you, but my my iPhone's not hasn't got that much better battery life than um, the one I first got, like sort of five six years ago. I think when I was trying to work out the actual increase in capacity, it's only only twenty five thirty percent for the actual battery. All the all the tricks have been how to run the technology around it better or fit a bigger battery into the case. It hasn't actually been increases in in um, the capacity of the actual underlying battery. Yeah, so that's my that's my little rant on batteries. 
No, I mean, you're exactly right. And and I think the mistake that's made thinking about batteries is batteries are chemistry problem and they don't conform themselves to Moore's law. They don't get 100% exactly. better and 50% cheaper every other year. So that's just not going to happen. You're reaching physical limits of physics. And that's why I try mm. to tell people, I mean, two plus two equals four. It doesn't matter, you know, whether you want it to equal five and it just isn't going to happen. And uh, I mean... Mark Mills at the Manhattan Institute, he's written some great articles just on this whole, he calls it a unicorn, uh, you know, fantasy and stuff like that. It just goes through this whole thing like like you just basically did about just the materials that would be needed. You know, if you want to put a thousand megawatt, you know, pressurized water reactor or something like that up in the, uh, Mike Kelly did that exercise when I talked with him, is a uh, professor of engineering. He's like, you know, it's on a, you know, 100 acres, but you've got these wind farms, that'd be a thousand megawatts. If you want to put at a 25% capacity factor, well, this would be all theoretical because it really wouldn't work with all the lines you'd have to put up and losses and transformer losses and hysteresis losses, all this crap that would go on. But putting up 4,000 megawatts of equal wind farm, uh, windmills at three megawatts each, that would be like, you know, I don't know, rough top of my head, 1,500 windmills spread out over how many square miles? I mean, it's ridiculous. And all the, you know, the losses you would have just trying to move that stuff around, um, you know, that's that's the argument, right? Well, we can just, you know, you can compensate because when one place is generating, yeah, well, there's a lot of generation in West Texas, but it doesn't do Dallas very good when it has to be transmitted 800 miles. You know, you have losses. So, uh uh, these yeah, people, I, they just don't understand anything, and uh, that's the opportunity. I, I'm counting on that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've got like a theory. I know it's not a, you, you can't actually use a term for it, but I like to use it anyway. Is um, like the high grading of your renewables. So when you you'll see <laughs> high grade, you, you high grade mines, and we're seeing that across the world. You see, it's always always at the bottom. There's more high grading goes on because you're trying to keep the the lights on, but um. I like to think of it as high-grade and renewables and the fact that a lot of the capacity factors we're seeing is obviously the first stuff that you put in, you get the pick of the spots. So a lot of the like the great stories and capacity factors are from stuff like Denmark, which is if you can just look on, like if you just Google Wind Atlas, that shows you like the windiest spots in the world and how it works with um, wind speeds. And you can do the same with, I think Solar Atlas is exactly the same. But you can look where these, what areas are essentially like perfection for renewables and that is like their markets exactly what they've done and then there's this this kind of theory that everyone loves to sort of say like the the 50 by uh, 50 percent renewables by 2050 where they they take that like perfect scenario and then spread it across like china and india that don't have any wind in land exactly and yeah and so that's kind of my my little theory behind like sort of the high grading effect across that is that you're just gonna you're gonna get horrible capacity factors on things that weren't economic in the first place and how long is it gonna take people just like like install like a ten percent capacity factor like wind farm is, is that actually gonna happen? Are we actually gonna like start scraping the barrel in that way before they say, Oh, this just doesn't work. This is just this is just stupidity. Yeah, I'm trying to dig up the I don't know if you remember, but um uh, when I, I did interview uh, James Kunstler, he told me to in, uh, try to interview Gail Tverberg or whatever. I can't remember her last name. She's an actuary, but uh, she did a lot of work on the yeah. old oil barrel or oil drum. Remember that peak oil blog? And yeah. she kind of 
all those people have kind of went to obscurity, but she did a lot of good math on some of this stuff. And I try to get her on, but uh, um, a lot of the, you know, she still writes a little bit obscure. Now that used to be real popular when uh, Matt Simmons came out with his book, Twilight in the Desert and stuff, which I don't think that that's over with yet, but uh, uh, I think we're going to revisit uh, some uh, at least severe higher prices. Uh, like you said, this, uh, the call on OPEC will not be able to, in a couple of years, probably won't be sufficient to compensate for the lack of investment uh, that happened because uh, shale sucked all the oxygen out of the room. But uh, anyways, uh, I mean, uh, that that's really where I'm kind of focusing now. I mean, I think the next 10 years, I guess, really kind of distill this down. We've talked uh, a lot here, but, you know, with the next 10 years, I'm thinking, I mean, I like to use these quips because I think they're funny, but like Robert Freeland says with copper, you know, because he's a big copper guy, but he's known for hyperbole, but he says the copper price is going to go so high, you're going to need a telescope to see it. I mean, you're at 350 yeah. copper now, you know, and nothing's really happening yet. So it's like, uh, it's probably overbought, it's ahead of itself, but this is an example. And, and I've really taken a look at like all the metals. I mean, even like platinum starting to move now. So it's like, you know, you're going to general, you know, upward move in this thing and no money. You've had a little bit of rotation, uh, but there's really not been a rotation. And the thing I remind people is, is, you know, I saw this happen when I first, you know, 20 years ago during the tech bubble or the internet bubble, whatever they want to call it. I mean, it was just by dumb luck because I've always been uh, keen on re resources. So I've always been messing with them, but I didn't realize the cyclicality and that stuff. But when the tech bubble blew up, I mean, uh, value and resource stocks went through the roof. I mean, over the next several years after the tech bubble, it wasn't like, you know, well, if, uh, you know, Zoom and Tesla and all these things blow up, you know, that doesn't mean everything else blows up. There's rotation. There's trillions and trillions of dollars out there. And, the, and it, these markets are not that big. And when the money rotates, uh, we just got a taste of it in the last couple months, especially in the last couple weeks. But I think there's going to be some tremendous moves ahead. It's just uh, so underinvested. So, I mean, I think we're at the lowest. What did I, what did I see the other day? The lowest um, percentage uh, energy is the lowest it's ever been as a percentage in the S&P at this point. I mean, it, 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 you know, it's screaming to yeah. be bought, you know. So uh, um, I, that's why I try to tell people. And it's, it's like you just got to – if this didn't teach people, like even during this lockdown, where they basically just locked the whole economy down and oil demand didn't just, you know, completely evaporate. People were kind of shocked. I mean, even when air travel comes back, that's that's probably 4 million barrels a day right there. That's where your big gap is. And then when people actually, and I do believe people will go back to the office. People, I know people don't like working. They like working at home because you don't have to work as much. I, I get that because you can hide. If you're not on a Zoom meeting, you're off fucking off, in, you know, laying in your hammock or whatever you're doing, uh, going to Home Depot and checking out the new saws or whatever. That's what people do. So but people are going to get dragged back to the office and face-to-face -face meetings and all that stuff. I, I just you know, we're humans, we're, we're social, we don't, you know, that's just how it's going to be, I think. That's my view, at least. So I think this comes back pretty quick. And then I think uh, people are going to be shocked. And then I think the next 10 years, just because so much underinvestment and lack of, um, you know, finding new supplies just going to reverberate. It's just, I, I think you're going to be shocked. People are going to be shocked at how high some of these, some of these prices go. Yeah, what's this going to be? Like I've, um, I was asking on Twitter and someone that had Bloomberg um, ran it for me that you got the the um, the hectare oil ratio and 
I don't know if you saw that. It was like a ran it with the comparison of the dot com to now. And so I originally had a tweet like at the start of the year that was um ESG is going to be just a big wealth transfer from um, tech investors to oil investors, like energy investors. And since then, it's it's doubled. So it was like at a ratio of about four at the, the very peak. If you top tick the dot-com boom, and now it's at pretty much at eight. It was just a touch under eight. And that's actually really important when you consider, like you just said before, like the... If you look at the long-term average of weighting of energy in the S&P, it's been sort of somewhere right between 8 and 10. And at the moment, we had a period in October where it actually got below 2%. And so yeah. when people say sort of indexes are do do reasonably well in, um, in inflationary times, or they're thinking of like the historic index going into inflation where your energy weighting was probably six, seven, eight percent. Well what happens when it's now around two or a bit higher now? And at the same time, you've got this big um load of tech stocks taking up twenty one percent that is essentially negative bonds. It's just yeah, it's just a whole lot of duration risk and not much else. So and then when you sort of layer over that, like I think it um I haven't convinced anyone Otherwise, it's just to um, to dig through all Mike Green's work. Like he's just fantastic, and I think once you start to understand how fragile that is and how much that's been passive, just driving those tech stocks up. Once that rotation starts, it's something that's been driven up to nosebleed levels by passive. It's the understanding that if you give passive money, it's just automatically going to buy. But if you ask for money back from passive, it's just automatically going to sell. And it's quite simple. But when you think about it, when passive pushed all the tech stocks up to that height, there's going to be crickets when it comes to sell. Like, are we really expecting the, the minority of active investors to step in and buy all these tech stocks at sort of nosebleed valuations? No, there's there's going to be some big gaps down. And at the same time, they're going to be trying to squeeze and rebalance into energy, which is at a record low. And so I think that's going to be quite something. I think that's when you're really going to see the equivalent of sort of skiing down the other side like we did in um, on the back of the dot-com boom. It'll be, it'll be a very heavy rotation. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I, I used to tell people, um, well, maybe up to about three or four years ago, because I did read his work um, and I did, was exposed to that and that uh, idea about the whole passive as a movement. Actually, Jim Poplava was talking about that about five years ago, but not as in depth as Mike does. But, you know, he was saying the same thing. What happens when this thing unwinds? Is anybody giving that any thought? And I used to tell people, they'd be, I'd just get them off my back and say, look, dude, you don't know anything. You're not going to do anything. You're, you know, you're working 50 hours a week. You got kids, you got hobbies. You're going to go home and what, read Forbes magazine and Barron's on the weekend and make investments. Just put your money in an index, S&P index, find the cheapest, you know, like a Vanguard fund and just put 288 a month in there for the rest of your working life and you'll do fine. I don't tell people that anymore because that's scary uh, when this thing unwinds uh, because you're right. I mean, there's no 
there's no thought put into it. I mean, if Amazon's the, you know, so much of the index, then that's where, you know, that percentage of your $100 goes and it doesn't matter. It begets more buying, which begets more buying. And, you know, it just, uh, then everybody comes out of the woodwork to justify it. Uh, you know, people that should know better. Um, but uh, yeah, when this thing turns around, that's what happens, right? I mean, these things stair step up and then no one wants to buy. I mean, that's what happened. Some of those tech stocks, I mean, even decent companies. I mean, look at, uh, there was a chart somebody put up, oh, like Microsoft, Cisco. These are legitimate companies that even Microsoft was a good business even after the dot-com bust, but the stock dropped off. It didn't recover. It didn't really do anything for 15 years just because it had been so, you had forward-loaded so much of the uh, of the um, gains. And it's just, you know, it goes back to Grantham and, and the CAPE ratio and that thing. If you, if you, if you um, if you're at 35 or 40 PEs, you know your forward returns over the next 10 years are going to be you know one percent or negative percentage, and you're going to have a big drawdown and of you know 40 or 50 percent somewhere or more in that 10 years. And I tell people that, you know, Meb Faber's done all that work. He puts it in a book and gives it away for free, and people won't read it. You know, and it's that's just going to repeat itself again. So, uh, um, yeah, I just I just find it sad though because it is like and just the average sort of man and wife that are working hard and just told 60 40 is yeah it's safe and all you're doing is having duration risk with more duration risk to protect you from your duration risk <laughs> it's just it's, <laughs> it's gonna blow up in your face and and yet everyone back tested it and said oh this has given you a nice nice 10% over the last 30 years and it's that's just like yeah to get anyone to understand anything different as you say takes a lot of work and a lot of understanding that you can't give to the um, the average man and that means that just a lot of mum and dads that, that, that's the one thing that's kind of i just find it hard to sort of swallow is the fact of how this entire sort of lockdowns and COVID has really just sort of further boasted the sort of the one percent like the, the idea that all the small business got closed and all the their revenues all got shifted to to Amazon and now you've got them all yeah. parked up and um, all this duration risk. It's just, yeah, the world is, the world isn't going to get any fair anytime soon. All the sort of um, imbalances are only going to grow. And then also going back to that um, people parked up in the, um, in the sort of 60, 40 portfolio and markets, markets used to be more orderly in that there was always, you had market makers and requirements for liquidity. And that's mm -hmm. what I think Mike made a really good point with that is that um, sort of the high frequency traders have stepped in in place of the, obviously the market makers. But when you're a market maker, you, you're you required to, to sort of make the market. Whereas a high frequency trader, if things get too hairy, they can just step back. And I think that's really going to come to the surface in a big way in the coming um, the coming year or so when I think he made a great example of the likes of Apple. He checked one day and it only had 2.5 million of liquidity. And you're talking about what well, at the time was sort of a $2 trillion stock. And so <laughs> when you're talking about that, like that's fine when it's going up and you've got lots of money buying it because you're just squeezing it higher and everyone's happy. But what happens when you've got 2.5 million of liquidity and everyone's trying to sell it? Well, that's, that's going to be pretty scary stuff. And yeah, I don't want to be anywhere near that. What's the Swiss National Bank going to do? So uh, yeah. they, 
<laughs> that's yeah. a whole other discussion <laughs> running the central bank as a hedge fund but yeah uh so yeah i mean i remember when i was a kid and uh in the late 70s when i kind of started messing with this stuff and i didn't really know what was going on and they used to call bonds certificates of confiscation because they were yeah. negative <laughs> returns you know i mean that's you know we've got 17 trillion dollars of you know negative yielding sovereign debt i mean I think it's just fascinating. I'm I'm picking it up on Twitter. It's like my new hobby is like cataloging um, all the different companies and entities that are now like I'm talking about like pension funds. And I even saw an insurance company here in the States called Mass Mutual. It's private. It doesn't trade. But they just I don't know how they got past the regulars, but they just dumped 100 million in Bitcoin. I mean, just because I mean, yeah. what? How do you how do you match your fiduciary responsibility for your pensioners or your insurance if you can't invest in you know seven percent you know treasuries or whatever? How 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 is this working? So everybody has become a speculator. Yeah, well they're just in like they're just in trouble because they've got their hands tied. They can't. They're gonna have to sit out this energy bull market because of ESG. Like as a pension, you you're simply not going to be able to buy some of the best performing assets. And that's going to make this all the more interesting is the time when they need that outperformance the most, they've gone to zero waiting. And that's, exactly. Um, that's, that, that's and, exactly right. And they're going to be absolutely getting rammed from, um, from inflation, killing their bond portfolio. It's what's already bad now. And the big funding gap is just going to get worse. And that's, yeah, I, um, that's part of the reason I would like living in a sort of a developing country where you're not going to have, them um, scrapping around trying to trying to um, find more taxes to fill these these gaps. You're just going to see we've already seen a pretty bad trend in the likes of New Zealand, Australia, with just getting even more nanny state than I thought was possible. And I really do think developing countries are the place you want to be moving forward. You can you can have a very good lifestyle. You can save a lot more because the living costs are so so low. And who doesn't like living in sort of 30 degree temperatures every day? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, that's what I've been encouraging people to do is kind of break out. I mean, you can pretty much go anywhere in the world for an economy class ticket for, you know, once things open up for less than two grand. So there's no reason not to check things out because you're exactly right. I mean, I'm even seeing now, you know, Silicon Valley's emptying out. Uh, people are coming to Texas, which bothers the shit out of me because that's these people bring their bad habits with them when they yeah. come to these low tax, yeah. low reg states. So, uh, uh, I saw that in Austin. I remember I was driving through there one time and they had a bunch of problems. All the surrounding cities around there dump all their hobos and bums in the Austin. Um, and, you know, and then the people were like, you know, lady was calling into this talk radio show as I was driving through about she lives in a high, you know, nice area, upper class area. And some hobo was taking a dump by the bus stop and her kid had to witness and she's outraged. You know, it's like, well, hey, this is what you wanted. So, I mean, what did you expect? You know, I mean. You know, as long as you don't have to see it, I guess it's fine. But somebody has to pay for it all, too. Right. So uh, that's another thing. They're talking yeah, about raising taxes in New York State again. I mean, there's it's just a vicious cycle. Right. It just drives people out. Yeah. Well, they just don't understand basic maths, basic economics as if you you've got a very small people um, pull the people paying all the taxes and you, um, you raise taxes handful of those people leave and it punches a far bigger hole than you raised it's just common sense and yet they seem to be severely lacking in common sense 
same with California. I had a tweet the other night that I was just joking around and um, just worked out who've got the most unstable grids in the world. So it was like um, a few Africans, like Mali. And, <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. And, I so, saw um, <laughs> and so I just um, worked out the most unstable grids in the world and then just plonked um, California and said, this is like the 2020 most unstable grids. <laughs> No one even bad an eyelid. They were like a few people were like source, please. And um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That you you can pass that off as fact. Anyone doesn't bad an eyelid, like oh yeah, that sounds about right. Like literally <laughs> the wealthiest, exactly. yeah. If, if not the wealthiest, California probably would be the wealthiest. Um, it's the wealthiest in America, probably damn near in the world. And yet <laughs> there you are with Africa for power reliability. Yeah, you couldn't couldn't dream it up. That kind of segues one one more question. We're going a long time here, so we're getting near the end. But um, you live in uh, where you live and developing country and stuff. Doug Casey talked about this a lot. He said that, you know, you're not if you're not really a citizen, you're kind of like a not necessarily a tourist. But you're he feels like, you know, where he's been in these different places, Uruguay, Argentina, wherever he's living. um, He doesn't he's not really subjected like the locals are to because he's people view, you know, you're a tourist, you're somebody that's there spending money. You Is that kind of your take on it? Or, you know, you don't really get dragged into a lot of the things that uh, uh, the locals are having to deal with, not, not necessarily just because of the, the fact that you're kind of a, a I don't want to, I don't want to sound too uh, like you're something special, but, you know, a, but a foreigner living in a country like that is usually, you, you know, you, a lot of times you're bringing a hard currency earning, in there and the, you know, you, your, your standard of living is so much higher just based can be just based on, you know, what would be considered not a large sum of money if you were back home, but in these places, you know, is that how you find it in your travels? Or I think that's a lot of people get worried. They're just kind of worried and scared, you know, well, well, what's it really like, you know, I mean, is it dangerous? And it's not really like that, you know, you're just kind of, uh, uh, that's been my experience at least, but, uh, how, how, what do you what, what's your what's your view on that yeah well, so perpetual here, traveler think, or whatever you want to call it you know <laughs> well here, here the big thing with bali is that the people were absolutely lovely they're kind of if you've traveled to any of the polynesian islands or the they're far like people misunderstand that this is um more like um they're not muslim here they've got their own religion which is like sort of balinese hinduism and they're just lovely they're the most happy um, they don't need much, and um, that's why I think Bali has become so popular compared to you've got very similar islands next door, like Lombok, with very similar resources, and yet Bali absolutely took off and has been the sort of the absolute winner in all of the Indonesian islands, really. And it's just that that they um, they're very welcoming, very happy, and um, yeah, it definitely has been hard though like, lately because. Like anything, everyone was completely reliant on tourism. And when you went from pretty much 6 million tourists through Bali last year to this year, they, they actually did a door-to-door count and it came in sort of around six, 7,000 people in total. So you've gone from half a million people flying in a month to just um, yeah, only as 6,000 um, 6, people on the island in total. It's obviously destroyed a lot of businesses and cleaned a lot of... Um, the locals up so you've had a few um sort of like robberies and stuff increases you would suspect with people getting desperate but overall mm-hmm. it's still um 
still been super safe, never really known of anything bad happened to anyone other than sort of a um, bag snatched off the back of a scooter or something. That's like the most common. Um, but but yeah, we've, we had last year, Mia and I traveled um, for six months around the world. We're trying to sort of work out, was there anywhere else we wanted to live in the world? Like we spent a month in Portugal, a month on the coast in, um, in Croatia, um, in her home country, Montenegro. And we really couldn't find the similar mix that we've got here. There's just something beautiful about this with great infrastructure, with all the Australians coming across and building like beautiful cafes and putting a lot of money into the economy to really sort of um, make a lot of the sort of the nicer restaurants and stuff. And at the same time, you've still got um, the island life and a lot of the simple sort of cheaper things. So I think it's just a, a really special mix here. We're just obviously be nice for a few tourists to come back in so that a few few of the locals could get back on their feet all right awesome yeah i mean that's what i encourage people to do i mean especially if you're a younger person i don't know why people would uh kind of waste away in the in the west but uh yeah i guess it just takes a certain kind of person so we're at the end oh, well we've been going at as well but uh, i know you got the blog which is excellent in my view i mean when you do i mean you put a lot of work into i mean it seems like once a month or so usually i see something yeah. but uh i mean there's so much work put in that's uh well worth uh, delving into and they're all still kind of relevant the things that you've written especially what relevant to what we've talked about here uh where can people find that at if they're interested in following your work yeah that's just tradeferg.com this is where i whenever i feel strongly about something i find I need to put my thoughts down on paper helps me think it through and um, yeah it's I always like to try and make it an easy read so I try and summarize it all down to one page and then and then write it out in a blog and pad it out with charts and and cartoons because I'm uh, I always find it hard to read all the text so I try and have the same courtesy when um, the readers just make it more enjoyable but yeah pretty much 90% of what I do is just on Twitter just play around on that for an hour a day or so. Yeah, are you the real quick? Are you kind of the same view I am? I mean, I've kind of cultivated a pretty good, uh, you know, group of people that I follow on Twitter. I used to tweet more, but uh, I just like kind of find you find quite a few smart people on there that you know you have ac people have access to, and people. Are, I try to tell people to do that. You know, you don't have to go on there and just be tweet constantly tweeting. You can go on there and just start following people and. And you'd be surprised at some of the people you can actually get access to that will, if you DM them, they'll, I mean, people are, for everybody I've found is pretty open with their time. I mean, you run into people that you wouldn't even suspect would ever talk to you and they'll be happy to, you're not going to have a four hour conversation with them, but I mean, Hey, what do you think about this? They might shoot back something or it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. I, I found it been a very useful tool uh, over the last couple of years. Yeah, well, I'm, my biggest regret is only starting it pretty much a year ago. So I've only been on it a year, and um, oh, wow. it's been one of the more, one of the more beneficial things I've done. Like my, even just this morning, I woke up and checked my, checked my messages, and two people asking me if I'd like to invest their money or start a fund, and had to say no. I'm, I'm quite happy <laughs> chilling <laughs> on the beach, managing my own money. I don't want that stress. But um, yeah, like the. My, my DMs are probably one of the most valuable things I have now. I um, I chat away with some people that, some hedge fund managers, some people that just sort of want to run ideas and have a chat. Like I've um, just, yeah, it's it's absolutely invaluable as a networking tool. That's why I kind of get 
like I've I pushed back on all social media for a while. I was just sort of saying that it's just it's toxic, but um, I've had nothing but a fantastic experience with Twitter. Everyone, everyone is super respectful. Um, the occasional dickhead to just block them straight away and um, and find they disappear, or, or if they are on the other side of things, like arguing for renewables or why coal's bad, I just I kind of enjoy seeing what angle they're coming from. It's just always respectful and sort of see that it's always pays to remember that you can learn something from everyone and just understand their point of view. Like they have a narrative in their head and instead of just judging them and telling them they're idiot, try and see how they form that narrative and how they got there and it can help you kind of understand um, what's sort of driving the market and where things are going because there's um, I, like it's almost like a sentiment um, tracker. I've said that a few times like I, I um, like sort of uranium to the moon sort of Twitter handles start to pop up and you can sort of <laughs> note that or or people are all um, some tweets I didn't think would take off absolutely take off and you know that you've kind of um, touched a nerve with someone sort of saying I think I had one that I sort of said um, I um, I see the argument for gold but I wouldn't touch it because I think energy is going to well outperform it and that brings everyone out of the woodwork sort of arguing and um, yeah it's just I've, I've found it super rewarding, honestly. Yeah, just put value out there and people pour value back at you is my is my experience. Yep, ex absolutely. All right, well, on that note, uh, probably close it off. Uh, definitely appreciate you spending time. Like I said, uh, popular guest. Everybody kind of likes it. I probably should have announced that I was going to have you on and probably could have got some questions. But uh, I think we covered pretty good topics and uh, appreciate your time and uh, appreciate you coming on and uh, talking with us. I really enjoyed it, John. Thanks for having me again. All right. We'll talk to you later. Thank you.